When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Pan America is committed to freedom of expression all around the world. In the wake of President Donald Trump's March 24, 2019 executive order on campus speech, Penn published Chasm in the Classroom, Campus Free Speech in a Divided America. It discusses the administration's constricted account of free speech threats emanating only from the left, and it details an array of infringements on speech, both official and informal. This report is a balanced view of what is happening on campus and how best to respond to it. I spoke with Jonathan Friedman, who is the Campus Free Speech Project Director, on how to think best about the crises on campus, how to resolve these issues, and how to move forward without relying too heavily on our courts and our administration to solve things that are perhaps best settled inside the university. Willkommen, bienvenue, welcome. No, this is not cabaret, it's Think About It, a podcast about the power of ideas and how language can change the world, with Uli Baer. So I'm really happy to be here today with Jonathan from the Penn organization. You're the project director for Campus Free Speech for Penn. First of all, welcome. Thank you. So excited to be here. I've known you in other incarnations. You've also been a faculty member and you have a degree and a PhD in higher education on global higher education, uh, which led you to a lot of research about how universities function. And can you tell me when you arrived at Penn, what's your mandate and what are you trying to achieve? And because Penn has not always been as actively involved in universities, it's been present, but it's not really been actively involved. And I wanted to talk about what your ideas, how we can help universities think through these issues that relate to speech, etc. Sure. So at Penn America, our mission is to really celebrate the written word, but then on the flip side, to defend the civil liberties that make it possible. So we are an almost 100-year-old organization that really intersects the worlds of literature and human rights. And we have a number of lines of programmatic work, and one of them is focused on campus free speech. We got into the campus speech debate at the end of 2015, and we've been in it for the past few years, producing reports, doing campus engagements, really trying to present a unique perspective on some of the tensions that were happening on campuses. And I think the question you ask about how can we help universities and colleges and administrators and faculty and students to understand some of these issues, I think that is the question that orients our work, very much trying to think about proactive solutions, guidance, advice, a philosophy, principles that can really help people navigate these issues who are, are facing them on the front lines day to day. We have seen in the past few years the politicization of campus free speech as a concept, as a battleground for much larger larger uh, political forces in society. And at PEN America, we're really trying to make sure that most campuses you know, can find ways to create the conditions that support the most speech for the most number of people, but in ways that are also cognizant of other values in higher education, equity, diversity, inclusion. To us, we see these values, value sets as mutually reinforcing. And a lot of the talk about these issues often pits them against each other, but we're kind of unique and we say in saying and in trying to put forth ideas about how administrators can uphold both at the same time. You've issued a report, you've published several things with Suzanne Nossel, the director of Penn, who's been on this podcast, giving people real direct concrete guidance. You've published principles, you published this report called Chasm in the Classroom, which is a book in itself, really, which is sort of the state of this matter right now. And 
when you said something a, a minute ago, you said the politicization of this issue. Do you think there was a moment when this issue, I mean, this has been with us since at least the Vietnam War and free speech movement in Berkeley, but do you think it's become more politicized, this debate, than before in earlier instantiation? Because you're a scholar of higher education. I've had, you know, Robbie Cohen on here, who sort of had written the books on Mario Savio. But is it more politicized than in earlier periods or decades? Yeah, so my um, former expertise was really in the history of globalization in higher education, which in the 20th century has ebbs and flows. And it's really kind of the same with, with free speech. They have different crests, uh, different moments of getting more attention and of feeling like they're in the front seat of higher education and the back seat of higher education. So there's been no question that the issue of free speech, we think of the 1960s, the free speech movement at Berkeley, there's no question that these these issues have been around for some time, but certainly 15 years ago, 10 years ago, you know, these issues around free speech were rather dormant. You know, you weren't picking up the newspaper or following trade magazines in higher education that were routinely commenting on the latest outrage, the latest infraction, the latest censorship. So there's no question that there is a kind of heightened scrutiny to the point that really has caught I mean, maybe it's not catching anyone off guard today, but certainly a year or two ago, as this was gaining more momentum, we can see a wave of faculty, for example, who suddenly discovered that their Twitter could be grounds for them to be fired, for them to be not rehired, for students to organize protests against them. And uh, really, we've seen this across the political spectrum. I want to emphasize that, that no group has a kind of monopoly over how they call for censorship or call or, or claim offense at someone's words. We've really seen this weaponized by individuals and groups on both sides of the political spectrum against their you know, adversaries. And it's a dynamic, right? So with greater politicization, polarization in many fields of society, as we've seen in recent years, it's a dynamic at play, a kind of tit for tat, where even within the same you know, incidents or controversies, how we bound them and how we think about when they begin and when they end often involve different groups kind of throwing censorship and free speech and the concept back at one another um, until these things settle in the dust. And you know, we move on to something new. Right. And you're coming from a place of really strong defense of freedom of expression globally. I mean, Salman Rushdie was your president for a while, who was actually who teaches at NYU in this very department here in journalism. But there's a commitment that free expression is the kind of underpinning of democracy. But you're not a legal organization. You're not the ACLU, who I've talked to people from the ACLU. You're not just looking at it through the lens of one particular legal framework, let's say First Amendment or something. But you're taking a view that it's inherently good to have as much speech and expression, right? Because you have an organization of writers who are all deeply committed to this. You're also dealing with a lot of people who've been penalized or harassed or you know, imprisoned for what they've been writing. So your mentality is it's very important to protect speech against the overreach of the powers that be. Yeah, especially now with so many repressive governments around the world who are really taking serious measures against people that threaten their lives for things that they write, for journalists around the world, for scholars. In many countries, there can be more significant, you know, consequential threats to people's livelihoods and lives from things they say. And at Penn, you know, at Penn, we are really are a big tent organization, so we're nonpartisan. We try to draw as big a circle as we can around some of the principles that we support. And it is somewhat humanistic when we think about how we really couple the legal principles that we draw on with our kind of deep embrace of, you know, just the flourishing that can be made possible by artistic expression and by holding to a really core belief that, as you said, free expression for all, right, for the most speech by the most number of people is essential to how we envision a democracy working, right? That doesn't, that's not always neat. It's not always civil, but it is a kind of core bedrock principle, in our view, underpinning a lot of these debates. And so we're trying to really make people remember that. At the same time, we do have an interesting kind of dual mission because of our literary past. And, and it is distinct from many other organizations, ACLU and others, which is that for us, we have long also felt that it's really important to do work lifting up marginalized voices. So we have numerous programs at PEN America, which try to really make the case that free speech and democracy only work when the greatest number of people are able to access their voices, to find their voices, to get access to the public sphere, to be celebrated in the public sphere. So that kind of idea of diversity and inclusion has long been core to PEN America alongside our defense of free expression. And so we have a longer history of thinking about those terms as kind of mutually reinforcing. 
And to say something about those two words, diversity and inclusion, which are, you know, contested, debated quite a bit. Sure. But you just said something else is to bring people into the conversation also to empower those people. So in some ways, you could look at it either as diversity and inclusion as a kind of nice, tolerant, kind of more passive approach. Or you're saying Penn is committed to giving people access to the marketplace who are not in the marketplace for many other reasons. Nothing to do with what they say, but actually how they are positioned in society, et cetera. So right. these, Upbringings, class. Right. All sorts of reasons why they're not money, what power, et cetera, et cetera. So you just wrote this book, Chasm in the Classroom. It's 150 pages, I think. It's pretty massive. And you try to take stock of what's happening and then end with some guidelines. If you could say something first, how do you think university administrators teachers and students should look at this, should they just go to the back of the report right away and say, what do we do with the next issue of crisis? Right. right. Where's the core advice? What do I do? So the advice is coming. One of our next products is going to be an online guide to all things campus free speech. And it's going to be taking some of the findings from the report, some of the principles that we've been articulating for many years, and really parsing those into quick, ready to use checklists, a compendium of sample statements and sample policies, how case studies of how people have reacted in different ways. So the resource dimension of this is one that we've been very conscious of and the one that we are in the midst of putting together, hopefully for launching in the fall. But when we were putting together Chasm, you know, there was that moment when it just ballooned, you know, like any kind of authoritative report on a topic as fraught, as complicated, as nuanced as campus free speech in the past few years. The report did get longer, but we really did feel a deep commitment to wanting to you know, give all of these different perspectives and different issues their due. And one of the things that we're really trying to push back at at Penn is the kind of rise of quick takes, superficial arguments that really work and have been inflamed because they speak to the stories that people walk around in their heads with. So if you're a conservative person, you have a story that you have been reading about and thinking about. If you're a liberal or a progressive student or faculty member, you have a vision of what's been happening on college campuses. And the two really don't speak to one another. They increasingly don't read the same media. And so whenever the latest breaking news happens, it's, oh, you know, if the story confirms what I already think, then I'm just going to take it as truth and shrug or move on or, or tweet about it and then go on to other things. But almost all of these campus controversies, and we know because we, you know, we really tried to present an account that is so balanced, the, the balance of which is really unparalleled by other accounts in the sector and on this issue right now, you know, that necessitated a kind of deep engagement with a lot of these issues. And on most campuses, you know, you have what emerges in the media, what bubbles up that we think happened. There's the accounts of many people who are there, the witness accounts, which often do differ about who did what first, when someone said something, who's to blame for a set of circumstances that, that unfolded. And a lot of the time we do have administrators who make a decision about something, but a lot of thought and complexity goes into those decisions and it's totally unaccounted for in, you know, the university did this, the university did why. And, you know, you've worked in universities, I've worked in universities. Anyone who has worked in universities know that universities on the inside are complicated, they are segmented, they're kind of, uh, I think the famous word is uh, fiefdoms. Different individuals may not necessarily agree. And so, you know, what is a university from the outside is really different on the inside. And so that complexity is completely lost and passed over when we talk about, you know, what happened at Middlebury or what happened at Berkeley or what happened really just at any of these colleges where there's a lot going on. And, and the other thing that's really often lost in public debate and public commentary on these issues is the backstory to a lot of things. So, you know, if we decide as a university or as a set of administrators that we're going to take some action, maybe we're going to decide to give in to a student demand that we'll be ridiculed for giving into, sometimes there's a lot of backstory there. There's the fact that we were actually already considering it before the students demanded it. Or maybe this is the third time the students are making that demand. Or maybe there's just a great deal of backstory. Maybe it was a razor-thin decision. You know, maybe it was like really close, like we voted and it was, you know, 11 to 10 and we were really actually quite torn about that choice. And we spent a lot of time thinking about it. But, you know, at the end of the day, we had to ultimately make some choice that made many of us uncomfortable. So like all of that is lost when we're like, oh, they did this today. Let's get upset about it. And it's also interesting that then all universities suddenly 
looked from the outside is if they make these decisions and this is the wrong decision. There are many decisions made all day, every day in all sorts of workplaces, institutions, organizations, etc. that could be right, that could be wrong, but they don't get that kind of attention. They are people being hired and people being dismissed or they are people being treated well or not so well and sometimes they have legal recourse, sometimes they don't. But universities excite the passions more than other things. And certainly they've come to, and they've come to occupy that special symbolic place. And there's no question that if we think about like all the decisions, let's just take politics, all the decisions being made at all the levers of government every day, do they really command the same kind of attention? You know, universities are a kind of, they're fun to criticize. You know, there, there's a playfulness there. It's a convenience of like a familiar punching bag. And I'll also say, as soon as we start critiquing one or two or three, suddenly the other interesting thing that happens is it's all of them. Right. I think another thing I would touch upon based on your earlier work, you're an expert in global higher education. I worked in global higher education for quite some years. What I learned is that all governments take an enormous interest in their higher education. And even in this country where we don't have one national university system, we have state university systems, but we decided at some point that we were not going to have a university in the early 1800s. Jefferson set up the University of Virginia, mm -hmm. but not a national university. But governments care and people care, which is a very interesting because there's also a lot of suspicion about universities now in America, which is, I think, really lamentable. But our government cares greatly about universities. Our president just issued an executive order. Our attorney general has weighed in. The previous one has weighed in. And it's not the Department of Education that really just cares about it. So there's a political interest in universities, and I think it has to do with it is the next generation is shaped how to think about their own country and themselves. So there's something happening in universities that just these are just kids, they're learning stuff, but they're going to be the citizens of our nation. And it's worth stressing that none of that is particularly new or contemporary, right? That's, you know, the university, you know, we, you mentioned that most governments today care about higher education. That is true. But in many ways, if you look at the history of some of those dynamics, it is in the U.S. that the idea of mass higher education really catches fire, really um, spreads the whole notion of professionalism, right, that each career requires a master's degree in order to succeed in it. That is an American invention in the late 19th century with the growing middle class. And those are the concepts that have really 100 years later spread around the world. You know, I don't know if it's fair to totally call it Americanization. It's not that Europe didn't have universities, but really the notion that higher education is, you know, college for all. I think Europeans would remind you a few hundred years Yeah, before. well, yes, but for an elite, <laughs> for elite right? Absolutely. It's very different in the United States. And we see that here in the development of sport, right? The popular, you know, let's not forget football is, you know, when you think of college, you ask people what do they associate with college, football's got to be the top one or at least in the top three. Higher education commands a great deal of attention, not just in the policy makers' minds or in the public's minds, and not just in that kind of training generation mind, even in just kind of more lackadaisical, it's a great time for everyone and it's important in our development and it's just, you know, what I, everyone looks fondly back on, you know, that they're carefree college years. So that really puts a great deal of pressure uh, on higher education. And I think the, the final promise that in America, it's the promise to enter the middle class. And that has probably also been complicated by rising tuition costs and the systematic underfunding. So the funding has actually lessened from state and, and federal levels, but it's become more expensive. And it used to be the kind of lever. And so that this is how you access the middle class American dream. Well, once the GI Bill comes in after the Second World War, you know, you have this flood of veterans coming to colleges and it really ballooned the college population and we haven't really undone that. So really it is in the second half of the 20th century where that American dream becomes realized by a greater number of people and we're still living with that legacy and trying to figure it out. And I would think the other two big trends that I've tried to really think through is that the elite colleges start admitting women in the late 60s, which is barely a lifetime ago, and they start admitting minority students in the late 60s under enormous pressure from the civil rights movement, really until then very little participation. So there's a kind of democratization, let's say, and a really good development. And this takes us to today where you think this is all good. Actually, I think I always thought higher education was improved in the 60s when people challenged a kind of conservative, elitist institution that just produced people who are just going into, you know, sort of upper, upper middle class jobs. Actually, universities became better, more dynamic, more entrepreneurial. And we owe to universities some of the greatest economic miracles in our nation. 
So all the tech companies, a lot of them were actually sort of birthed in conjunction with universities. So why this kind of frustration now today? Why don't we just say, well, this is just kids and they're going to you know, act out a bit and there's issues being worked out and we can move on. Why is this attention there when someone comes? Do you think that the report you did, why do these flare-ups gather the attention of the entire world, not just the country? Yeah, so these tensions were there. I want to go back a little bit historically, right? So these tensions were on campuses when I was a college student, you know, a, a speaker is coming to campus and there's a group of people who are angry about it. Certainly social media changes the ways in which information about these incidents, you know, can be fanned to a larger group of people much more quickly. So that's that's one key change. But the other is a diversifying student population who comes to college with new ideas and new expectations of what it means to belong there. And there's no question there is a legacy at a lot of higher education institutions that hasn't necessarily examined all of the ways that it accommodates all of these students. So many institutions, for example, have brought in higher numbers of international students in the past decade, 15, 20 years. But it's really only the richest institutions that have the money to say, oh, we have a great number more Muslim students here now. Well, maybe we should give them somewhere to pray or accommodate their food choices, right? So that change alone, that you know, demographic change alone, just from international students, you know, really has posed many challenges to many institutions. But for domestic students as well, you have just kind of the shifting demographic that says, you know, we want to be taken seriously, we want to be treated equally, and that has raised new questions, new tensions with principles of free speech, and all of that was kind of there, and then boom, Trump. And, you know, if you really think about like coming for young people who grew up in the era of Obama for, you know, the way that their parents, you know, spoke, let's say if their liberal parents spoke glowingly of Obama, for many of those students, you know, they really thought that Trump couldn't happen. You know, many people thought Trump couldn't happen. You know, Trump was supposed to be an impossibility. And, you know, now we're two years into this or three years into this, and still people are kind of walking around in a daze of disbelief that there could be a president who flaunts so many rules. You know, we thought the rules had already been flaunted before. You know, there's a long history of presidents towing the line, pushing the line, pushing the boundaries. But somehow Trump really has smashed all of those records. You know, he, he, he lies so regularly. Regularly, and he is now, as we speak, pushing back against any measure of accountability and oversight by the Congress at all. I mean, that is totally, I believe, almost totally unprecedented in the obstinate. That is what liberals think. And then you have a large part of the country who think he's finally broken with the pieties of political correctness. And he's called out that this is all politically motivated. There's no legal or constitutional basis for any of this. And he's finally cleared this fog of liberalism, identity politics, accommodation, and there's a bit of robust. And there are lots of people, including most of the senators in the Senate, who think what he's doing is probably fine. Well, so, so, or, or don't speak out. So in some ways, I just think it's interesting that what you're saying, that is a, that he's also opened up a space, right, for people to finally say what they felt they couldn't say, which they had been saying on the internet for quite a few years already. I mean, if you were following Breitbart News regularly in the year leading up to the election, you know you had a good chance. <laughs> you certainly can't separate any of these social phenomena from one another, right? So Trump doesn't happen in a vacuum. He happens with social media. It's not a coincidence, right, that Trump was very good at Twitter and kind of seemed to master it first. It's not a coincidence. We think of Trump as like the person. We talk a lot about Trump the person. But of course, it's not just a person. It's a phenomenon, right? It is, you know, you point out senators or the greater public who, who felt somewhat stifled and, you know, pushing back against political correctness. And those tensions are very real on college campuses. So Trump certainly, in terms of higher education, seemed to you know, open up a space and seem to condone a movement into the mainstream of, you know, white nationalist or white supremacist ideas. Many of those groups now avowedly trying to recruit more students on college campuses, you know, circulating propaganda, putting flyers out on college campuses. They certainly are acting in bolder ways. We see that in protests, quote unquote, or riots at the University of Charlottesville, University of Virginia in Charlottesville. So there's no question that Trump, you know, opens up that space and contributes to these dynamics. And, you know, if, if we look at like the most extreme protests by students, some of the most insistent protest actions against speakers, they all happened after Trump was elected 
And now they've kind of died down. Uh, they certainly died down since the midterms. There is a remaining question about whether they're going to come back. And I'm talking about incidents like uh, students blockading the building at Claremont McKenna, some of the more violent efforts by whether they were students or whether they were masked uh, Antifa protesters. It's unsettled, you know, at Berkeley against Milo or at Middlebury against Charles Murrow. So some of those incidents, you know, which really commanded so much attention, and we cover them in our report, it's important to note that they did all come on the heels of Trump and that they haven't necessarily continued or gotten worse. And so there is this particular moment where these, you know, it's like a clash of different ideologies and a clash of different echo chambers. I do want to ask you about one incident, Missouri, which I think precedes the Trump election. Right, yes. And it's really about due process under the law, and it's against police brutality, and it's the name of Black Lives Matter. And there the football team actually joins a kind of student protest and says, we're not going to show up for a game. The president resigns. So there's, a, there's actually student pressure around an issue around race under Obama. That was a moment, I think, when universities said, wow, the students are not really satisfied with how the institution is working for them at Missouri, which was you know integrated 50 years ago at that moment. So in some ways, and then the administrators, some of them resigned in response to this, maybe to actually help the institution. I don't, you know, details are not that important in a way. What's important, I think, is that there is this tension. But what you're saying after Trump, then this tension gets national attention each time. Each time there's an incident, the entire country looks at it and says one of two things. Universities are failing. These students are out of control. Or the universities are failing because they're not helping us, the students, really study here. So this is the narrative is sort of the university is at fault. So I think your guidelines are really useful because universities are kind of caught in this really terrible place. Either they're failing because they're not allowing conservative speakers or they're failing because they're not allowing the students to really participate. But it puts the university in the middle of something where you said earlier the university is sort of acting in good faith and trying to create a space for everybody to speak. But it gets attacked essentially from both sides. I mean, it's, it's worth pointing out that the zeitgeist, you know, if we think of it that way of like administrators and how they think and how universities work on the inside, really, I would say like on the whole tends to be probably more conservative and not necessarily conservative in terms of like their visions of a political future, not necessarily conservative in terms of visions of equity or diversity and inclusion. But I mean, conservative in terms of change and in terms of proactive steps. You know, if you're a hallowed institution, if you are an established institution, you have to be careful about the choices that you make. Make that might, you know, jeopardize your reputation, that might give you bad press. So higher education, you know, regardless of Trump, regardless of the free speech issues, higher education was always under some kind of, you know, gun in some way on some issue, many issues around, you know, sexual assault, around adjunctification of the labor of professors. You know, there were many issues going on on college campuses and pressures. The question was, you know, what are the levers that really push the university to change? And so, like, where possible, you know, the university wants to study its choices. It wants to, you know, let's establish a task force on that. Let's take our time. Let's really think, right? There's a tradition of thinking uh, in universities about these decisions, which we were discussing earlier. And so I think with regard to racial issues in higher education, you know, we were at a moment in 2015, 2014 with Black Lives Matter, with, you know, evidence in many sectors of society that, look, racism is kind of still a major problem in the United States and that many people who are on the brunt of that feel it's being unaddressed, putting new pressures on higher education. I don't think anyone could have predicted that somehow out of the uh, strange convulsions of politics and higher education that the result uh, could be now what we have with Trump and where higher education, where these issues around race and free speech uh, are now. But there's, there's no question that one of the undercurrents of a lot of challenges on a lot of college campuses at their core are about race. You know, people like to say racism, you know, if you compare the United States and Britain, they say, you know, race has always been like the core problem in the United States or the core uh, social issue. And in, in the UK, it's it's social class. And it's not a perfect comparison. But there's no question that there were groups who were agitating for those kinds of changes. And, you know, if you have never experienced what those students were claiming to experience, right? If you've never been in their shoes, if you've never walked into a room and been, you know, the only student of color or had someone, you know, in the, the office of your building ask you uh, because you're a student of color that you must not belong there in the business school or maybe you're lost, you know, those we, we call those, you know, I think like microaggressions or, or maybe their acts even more like just accidental offense. I think a lot of times people don't necessarily mean badly with them, but 
they accumulate, they have a significant effect. That effect is real. It is lived for people. And that was, there's no question that that has been one of the most significant undercurrents in what we've seen explode on college campuses in recent years. It's not the only undercurrent, but it's one of the keys. The guidelines you give in this report, so you talk about things like microaggressions, safe spaces, trigger warnings, campus speakers, how to regulate or not regulate faculty speech. And what you just said is really interesting. When universities usually, they... They meet in a committee, they have a task force, and then they look at this because they actually have a structure of, let's say, faculty and student governance as mm. well. So they want to meet with people for 10 months, and then next March I'm going to issue a report on what we should do. That is not possible in today's day and age when you can have something happen on campus and within minutes it has been viewed by hundreds of thousands of people online. So what you're trying to do is sort of say, okay, here is something you can refer to, a bit of a manual to say this is how you can prepare for these things. And this is how you can claim and assert and explain your values, but also respond. And I think this this response time issue is really hard on universities because the whole university is not set up to respond within minutes. That's not how we operate, actually. We're not the FBI or we're not a police department, actually. It's not as, you know, first responders. It is actually about thoughtful responses. Absolutely. I mean, most universities don't, or maybe now they do, but they certainly historically wouldn't have a policy on what to do when Nazi, neo-Nazi flyers are pasted all over campus. What should we do? How quickly should we say something? At some universities, what I've been told are students, there are sometimes racial incidents that the students affected by them actually don't want the university to talk about them or publicize them uh, because they feel like it gives the act of aggression more oxygen. In other cases, people, students, faculty, uh, when they're attacked, there's nothing more than they want than a swift, uh, powerful denunciation of acts of hate. And for many universities, if you hesitate in that moment, you know, whether it's the president, whether it's the provost, whoever it is, to take, you know, what is the right action, you're going to be losing some part of your community. And so what we're trying to do is uh, remind people of those commitments. And a lot of time, it's things people think anyways, right? So it's a lot of times it's, you know, a president of a university of any university in the United States, I can't imagine thinks that like we should have swastikas on campus. But when it comes to denouncing that, there's this pause where they have to think about, you know, either uh, legal repercussions of what I'm about to say, what can I say, what can't I say, how should I say it, how soon should I say it. And so this, you know, totally, again, referring back to what we were saying before about what all the nuance and the complexity is lost in the public commentary of these things are the deep internal debates. I mean, I gave you a simple one, a swastika on a campus. There are ones that are much more complicated and much more thorny for people to make quick but decisions let's on. Let's stay on the swastika on campus one. It's a useful example. It's happened. And one would think, Common sense would dictate to say, well, that's something easy. You'll condemn this right away. But there had been a moment when people said, well, it's expression. We want to be careful. There's what Fred Schauer, legal scholar, calls First Amendment opportunism. Someone will say First Amendment. You remember Skokie. They have a right. And then you're realizing, but this is a college campus, and this was pasted on someone's door, on a student's door, or in a classroom, or found as graffiti in a bathroom. This is a community that actually has some values. And what you propose in the the guidelines at the end of this report, you say the university should defend and protect free speech, but it should also make its values clear and apparent all the time and speak out very strongly in favor of its values, even when something happens on campus that that seems to contradict that. And I think that is a really... Um, difficult balancing act. It means you can endorse free speech as a principle, but you want to be careful not to condone the message. And you lay that out pretty carefully how that would happen. And it's not just presidents. It's college teachers. Students themselves actually have to do that. And I think really there are numerous people who are leading higher education who are actually doing this and who are getting the message and who are trying to practice it and who are learning from one another, whether indirectly or directly, and starting to kind of get this idea. I and mean, I think that's actually really important to recognize and to, I don't know if I want to say celebrate, but but to affirm that in what we're angry about or what we're upset about day to day means that there isn't a lot of time to say, hey, you know, you this university, you did a really great job yesterday in but talking about that. I'll tell you that one thing. With, I used to be in a university administration and I used to joke with a friend of mine who now runs a college. He's the president. And we said, 
How many times have people sent you chocolate, flowers, and champagne in the last two weeks because you you prevented some crisis? And that doesn't happen. Right. You're supposed to do your job. It's supposed to work well. And when it doesn't work well, you're supposed to be there to absorb the blame. <laughs> so when things work out really well, no one really calls the president and says, thank you for making a week go by that went really well. That's your job. Well, and, and actually what's also often lost is just how deeply torn many administrators feel about these situations. And I mean that administrators in a very broad sense from the top, you know, from the high levels, senior levels of administration to lower levels. And many of them actually feel quite torn about, you know, when can they say things? What can they say? How do they maintain? political neutrality. I was told by an administrator, you know, she really goes out of her way not to wear political buttons for anything, you know, because she would really not want to alienate anyone. So administrators have gotten this really bad rap. I think a lot of times we're incredibly uncharitable to administrators. Certainly there is it's critique is necessary. Critique is important uh, in the public sphere. That's part of how we keep colleges and universities accountable. But we can sometimes, I think, cut some administrators are a little slack or say, you know, this is something we want you to learn from. We can, you know, think about asking the same thing that we ask of our students to learn from their experiences and their mistakes, et cetera, as they move forward. But I think the point you make is really important also with regard to free expression, thinking about context, right? So the context of the act that we're talking about is really significant. You know, free speech, free expression, when it is done anonymously and when it is an unambiguously hateful message, right, that should be, that's easy. It gets much harder when we're talking about political slogans that kind of can be interpreted one way and can be interpreted another. So if you say build the wall, if someone writes that on a campus or if someone is uh, walking around a campus chanting that, it's actually much more difficult to say 100 percent that is hateful to all people. In fact, many conservative students would tell you, and I have been told by some of them, that they don't see that as a hateful statement at all. They don't mean it in a hateful way. I think that such students could learn. We could ask those students to listen and learn and think about and reflect upon how to be more conscientious in their choices. But for the administration, that's a much more difficult uh, situation for them to weigh in on quickly when a lot of the details may be obscured about who said what. And, you know, it's not the only one. There was this uh, situation at Emory University, actually before Trump was elected, where his name was put in chalk on the campus, or I think it said Trump 2016. And many students were, you know, lampooned for reacting really strongly to that. But for a lot of students, you know, they said it was it was kind of just like the trigger of deeper feelings, uh, feelings of insecurity or unsafety. So it wasn't necessarily the Trump's name alone. They were saying shouldn't be on campus or that shouldn't be allowed. I mean, that is absurd, right? He's running for president, so but it, it raises out these it's challenges. A, it's a nice, different example from an extreme symbol of hatred like a swastika. But Trump, he's also our elected president. And it's just a name. It's sure. a political campaign. There are many candidates in there. If I put a name on the sidewalk now, if I say... Beto or Biden or Kamala or Pete or whatever, and someone gets really offended or upset by that, what should a university do at this moment? And you've, you've weighed in on this and said, it's probably not a great idea, according to this report, the way I understand it, to have free speech zones, which were set up during Vietnam War protests to allow the campus to regulate its space more safely, to say, there's a space over here, you can all demonstrate, we don't want this everywhere and all over the place because it disrupts traffic and we have problems and there's going to be security, etc. So what should they do when someone is chalking up the campus plaza, if you have a plaza or some or the entrance of a building? Do they have a right to do that? Well, in most cases, the students do have a right to do that, right? Or whoever's doing it does right. have a right to do it. In most cases, the biggest challenge of so much uh, hateful or borderline hateful or ambiguous speech is that the people doing it do have every right to be doing it. And so I think, you know, if you haven't done anything before that moment, if you haven't done anything proactive, you know, we were talking a minute ago about announcing your values and educating students about that. I mean, what we have found when these things have happened in the past few years is just incredible misinformation and different understandings of what can be said, what can be done, is that, you know, you ask, you know, well, is he allowed to do that? You have administrators turning to one another who've never faced these kinds of situations. Also not all constitutional lawyers, yeah. even constitutional <laughs> lawyers, Stanley Fish said, they should, first of all, administrators should not play the role of moral philosopher. Uh -huh. And secondly, in private universities, the Constitution doesn't really regulate everything. Totally. So in some ways, you're saying they're at a loss. What should happen beforehand to make the campus deal 
deal with such an issue or incident more successfully. Right now, we're pushing this message of how to be proactive around these things. That's what we've learned from seeing them unfold right over the past years is like, oh, actually, this is something that we need to build into the kind of core training and core education and core messaging around like what happens on a college campus and what students are, you know, quote unquote, getting themselves into there. I think, you know, in the moment, one of the things that we've also seen is that if it is a hateful message, even if it's an ambiguous message, of course you want to say and explain to the community that this is an act of free expression, which we condone and we support. But that doesn't have to be what you lead with. That you know, If a student is coming to you upset about something, you don't have to begin with, well, free expression and close your door. You, know? you can you know, begin by offering support, by listening, by most of the time, as I said, a lot of these things, they aren't themselves the issue. They kind of just become the conduits for deeper issues and for deeper conversations. And so it's about having those conversations and about practicing listening. So I think there's a lot that college campuses can do now that we've seen the effects of this and we're living through this moment of deep polarization to make really clear to the campus community, you know, what are our values? What are the rules? What are creative ways to confront that? You know, if someone is chalking a message, I mean, what more powerful reaction than to simply ignore it or to chalk something over it or chalk something near it? You know, I think a lot of time we have developed a lot of sensitivities around speech, which could be more strongly met with satire, with eye rolls, with backs turned, you know, with with aggressive speech, you you know. I liked what you wrote about these ideas of all the things you just mentioned, that there are different responses to it. First, I'm going to say something about listening and then the other responses, which you you just included some that people would be outraged by. No, you can't shock over, you can't turn your back, you cannot disrupt anything. But the listening part is interesting. You mean an active kind of listening, not just listen, then say, okay, First Amendment and close the door again. And in some ways, that I think hasn't worked at all. I think how people hear that is to say, I'm going to protect the right of that person because I like that person's position. And that conflation of I'm defending that person's position, students don't trust enough anymore to say, I trust that you actually also hear me out. And say, I think you're just giving the benefit of the doubt to that guy who's chalking. And that's not really a community then anymore. That's just kind of a divisive a breakdown. And maybe students are setting it up this way, but then administrators have to be the ones to say, what is your concern here? Is your concern that this is there's chalk on the sidewalk? No. What is your real concern here? Do you believe that this does not allow this campus to work for you? Well, you know, there's no question that these are... You know, it's easy to, I think, sit and opine on what it is people should do in the moment, right? When we're talking about, you know, a lot of people in a lot of different contexts, a lot of different situations. This is what I mean when I talk about, like, having being a little charitable to people. Uh, people, like, you know, people are human. Humans have their flaws. But really, you know, the message I have is that the best defense against some of these challenges is strong offense, right? So, you know, what can you do when students arrive in freshman orientation? What institutional statement do you have to point to that says, you know, look, we really value inclusion and we also really value free speech and we see them both as mutually reinforcing and we're going to apply those principles as much as we can. You know, there's not it's not always going to be perfect. There's going to be situations where people's feelings are hurt or where there are sometimes really serious consequences from free speech. But, you know, turning back to that kind of humanistic position on free speech that we take at Penn, you know, ultimately we believe in the kind of greater democratic good of free speech and what we've seen lately is out of the weaponization of these situations Political, you know, state legislatures across the country are jumping the bandwagon on this to pass new laws that would mandate uh, discipline for protesters. You know, it's found to be, I think, a lot of the language is around quote unquote infringing on other people's expressive rights. It's exceptionally vague from a legal standpoint. What does that really mean to infringe on someone else's right? Can you could you be found guilty of not speaking over someone but somehow preventing someone else from hearing? What exactly are we talking about here? And when we get into questions of speech, it's actually really thorny to start to say, you know, when one person is talking, when they're interrupted, right? Heckling has a really central place in the history of American political engagement. Democracy is messy, you know. Abraham Lincoln used to give speeches and was heckled all the time. I'm going to interrupt you for a moment. (laughs) I'm exercising this idea. It's actually interesting you say this. Jeremy Waldron, who teaches here and has written on hate speech, he says heckling should be allowed and encouraged. It's good when people actually ask a question in the middle of a lecture. He said that is robust debate. That is not really the climate right now, that there's a lot of universities now. I was at a university two weeks ago at a conference, Harvard University. They have a recorded announcement before every speech that anybody who will disrupt a speaker 
or block the speaker from you will be asked to leave or ejected by security officers. And I thought, so if you stand up and turn your back toward the speaker, you can be thrown out of that room. And I thought, but there are many, many things I could get thrown out for. I can eat or I can, you know, leave my garbage behind or I could sit on the wrong chair or put my feet up. There are all sorts of rules in universities that don't have to be announced. This one they announced. And you're saying there should be a little more tolerance for saying students could stand outside of a building and chant. Yeah, why not? You're going to, in your building, come outside and tell us what we can and can't do on a public sidewalk, right? Think about that. Think about what we're talking about there. It's just a lot more complicated than simple laws and rules. You know, in the Harvard case you mentioned, at least they're saying the rules beforehand, right? A lot of times the rules are kind of vague and subject to the judgments of the campus security involved. And maybe that's good, but maybe there's challenges there. What happens when one campus security officer makes a decision to cancel an event when maybe the speaker wasn't exactly being disrupted. There's this idea that these are simple issues, right? When you're talking, when you're interrupted, right? You interrupted me a minute ago. That was our conversation. You know, that that's part of engaged, robust debate. But I do think there has to be a line, right? And I do think that, you know, if you are invited to speak somewhere, that if you are being given a stage, if you're trying to speak to an audience, if people are playing music over you, right? If they're, We've seen this on college campuses where students, or maybe they're not even students, but where someone is coming next to you with a cowbell and you can't talk at all. I do think that that is like crossing a line of disruption. And I think that's really different from a single heckle or two heckles or three heckles at different moments. And I also think it's really perfectly all right for administrators. And in fact, what we should be asking of administrators is to come out and issue a warning to students or others if they're disrupting. I think that warning that says, look, you know, we tolerated your disruptions up to this point, but now is the moment, you know, five minutes in, 10 minutes in, whatever it is, the third heckle, that now is the moment that after this, we're going to have to take a more serious, we're going to have to approach this with, you know, a more disciplinary orientation or, or throw you out or that sort of thing. I think that's okay. I think that's important. So, you know, I think we have to be careful that these situations not devolve into total, you know, circus. But I think a little circus and a little provocation, I think is okay. I think, in fact, in most circumstances, it's really interesting to remember that the speaker has the right to speak, and we really want to defend those speakers' rights. But the students or the protesters, they've got rights to speak too. And that's where regulating expression is so difficult. I want to touch on one issue you mentioned in the report and the principles at the end, which I think really are useful. And I think they would be a great thing as starting a discussion with students, faculty, administrators in a room. And as you pointed out earlier, on all levels. Because it is not just a president and provost. It is sometimes literally someone who is a valued staff member in the dining hall who has to deal with things suddenly because there's some eruption of some kind of controversy. And you say that when external speakers are funded by external agencies, the university shouldn't interfere and shouldn't stop that necessarily if it gives students the authority to invite speakers. But it should be cautious not to skew it in a way that some groups have huge amounts of resources and funding available to external funders and other ones don't. Because that can introduce another kind of imbalance to say they're getting funded by big national organizations to bring speakers on campus, which don't exist on all sorts of sites. So how should universities deal with that, especially when you're a smaller college and you have somebody come in and say, we'll pay this speaker an enormous amount of money, enormous meaning $15,000, that's enormous for, for academics, and we'll bring them here. And another student group says, we'd like to bring people, but we don't have those organizations on our side. Should the university have a conversation about this? What is happening here? Because does it skew what is actually happening on campus through outside influence? I think one of the things that's really important to remember when talking about higher education is some of the unique aspects of academic freedom and university governance. We were talking about that a little bit before. And so when we talk about like the campus community and why it's so important to make this like collective education for all, making the rules clear to everyone, but we also have to accommodate the fact that like a professor might, you know, be able to and should be able to completely 100% criticize and disagree with the choices of the administrators in their own university. And that's really a strange thing for most people in most jobs, right? That only exists in the university. Yeah. And so how do we wrap our minds around that? I mean, it's a good way of thinking about, well, these are kind of special institutions that have to play by special rules, and they have to really be very thoughtful around a lot of these things and being proactive around these issues. On the question of you know security or security fees or speaker fees and what universities should do, what I often say to people is – 
you know, in all of these campus speech debates in a moment of incredible polarization, and nobody really wants to do this, and it's hard. You know, I don't even necessarily like doing it, but is to really just flip all the political actors involved and think about whether your feelings would change and whether you would still feel it was fair. Maybe it's now Young America's Foundation, you know, spending a lot of money to bring uh, speakers to college campuses. Well, how would we feel if that was Black Lives Matter? And of course it's not, and there are power dynamics involved, and there's a legacy of social class and, and racial dynamics here that's at play that I'm bringing up. But just ask yourself, you know, do you think that that would be fair if whatever it is you're describing was totally flipped? And if you can't say that that's fair and that's equal, then we have to think of ways that we move toward fairness. And so one of the things that we really do think a lot about in advocating for free speech and inclusion and in advocating for proactive steps for universities and university administrators on all of these issues is really asking themselves, and similarly for political leaders, for Trump, I mean, there's no question that like his executive order and some of the state level legislatures that have passed laws have been motivated by Republicans who really see free speech as only a conservative issue and just totally ignore all the instances in which people on the left are attacked or you at the source of these. bring up an example. You talked about the executive order and the yeah. relation with Suzanne in, 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 in an editorial for CNN. And you said there's at Kennesaw State, there were five cheerleaders who kneeled during uh, the right. national anthem and they were not put back on the squad. They said, well, it was, we can't prove this. But you said this hasn't made national news. Right. That actually student athletes exercised their political right, their First Amendment right to express their, their viewpoint on something. And they were not put back on the squad. Mike Pence and former Attorney General Jeff Sessions, Betsy DeVos, you know, they have all played to the kind of normative conservative lines about what's going on on campuses and how the college students are out of control. It's completely biased. It's completely unfair. And it's really problematic. And so like when our elected leaders are being so partisan in how they're telling the story, it's especially difficult to be asking, you know, their adversaries on the left to be generous and kind to conservative students on campus. But the reality is that if we're going to teach students that, for example, I mean, the group Students for Life is always uh, talking about the ways in which its students are attacked on college campuses for their pro-life advocacy, if we're going to say, you know, that's okay and that's free speech and those groups should be allowed, you know, we're not going to get there by continuing to demonize people on both sides. We need to get to a space where everyone kind of brings down the temperature on a lot of these issues. And I think it's it's about reminding people that democracy is messy, right? So when we talk about like free speech and why we think it's important to society, it's about reminding people of the alternatives, which are, you know, how people used to resolve disputes. So like the core of free speech, the core is so core to democracy because it's it begins from a moment of accepting that like, well, I'd rather not be at war right now, right? I'd rather not be fighting you. So let's talk it out. That's where all of these rules came from. You know, if you haven't been part of war, if you haven't seen a civil war, right? It, it's very distant to us. We've forgotten that. So there's all this talk about free speech today and it, it feels really abstract. Like, what does it really matter if I want to shut down this speaker who's pissing me off or rally around something or engage in civil disobedience? But again, if we're going to ask commentators to be generous to the protesters, if we're going to ask the leftist students to be generous to the conservative, you know, Christian students, if we're going to all kind of, quote unquote, get along, I think we, in some ways we have to remind people of that like core reason or, or social compact that we're asking people to buy into that undergirds a lot of this. And I think people have forgotten that. I'm going to add one thing, and I, I know you agree with me, that some students or and some people and some faculty will say, yes, a lot of people have forgotten that this is a better option than being at war. But some people say a lot of people in this country are actually continually under attack. And I think it's what you said much earlier. It's not accidental that race is the usually the kind of flashpoint for these debates, sometimes sexuality or gender. But it's really race. And in the 90s, it was really obscenity and pornography. And now it's really race. And that some people would say, we live in a country where we don't have due process or equal protection under the law. We're not even safe from the police. And they would say, we know what it means to be actually, to have no option to speak. So in some ways, I think what's really, what you're proposing, I think is really important to say, people should remember, this is the better option. You're gonna have to bring people into it and say, this is really a better option for you. And you can trust that this will actually benefit you. I think that trust is a really hard thing to reestablish for some people who feel, well, I've been sold this bill of goods for a long time. It's gonna be really good for me to just listen and speak when, my community is under attack in a way. And I think that's what this comes out of sometimes and comes on college campuses. I think you're saying we're working out the, the messiness of democracy. We're also working out what equality really means, which is also really complicated. It's not easy 
I quote this a lot. Jefferson Healy had hoped that equality would be as self-evident and obvious as a mathematical formula. And he said, regrettably, it's not. So you have to impose it on people. That's a great quote. But it's really troubling in a way. And he said, I'm going to set up an education system. He said, equality is something you have to learn. It's, you're not born with it. You don't. That's like free speech. It's actually not something you're born with. We have to learn how to enact it. Well, and I think some of the most powerful messages, right, that people, you know, think about Black Lives Matter. And why did that message resonate so powerfully with so many people, black, white, you know, whatever. And it was because it seemed to hit upon a deeper truth that the message was a kind of goal that we could all aspire to and believe in. At the same time, the pushback against that movement, which has been equally, you know, vociferous and strong, raises other tensions as well. And so if our biggest problem is social movements fighting against one another, like, you know, I know it feels really significant, and it is. And I don't want to downplay like the significant challenges that many people in this country are facing with hunger, with employment, with livelihood, and that some of those dynamics are deeply, well, obviously classed, but deeply racial and gendered as well. It's very important that we have ways of bringing attention to those. And it's for those reasons that we have to defend free speech so powerfully, because it's it's through speech that those ideas get articulated. It's through speech that people can organize around those principles and organize for change in positive, productive ways. And, you know, there, there can be change. There can be movements politically. There can be political gains that can be achieved for those groups. You know, there's no question that those were the issues at the end of the Obama presidency in particular. And a kind of feeling like, well, if you can't achieve these things, you know, then who's going to? That was the kind of moment that we were in at the end of, of the Obama years was a feeling that among many that he hadn't quite achieved the things that we thought he had aspired to. Perhaps he would say similarly to Jefferson, you know, regrettably, this actually was a lot more difficult to do than I thought it was eight years ago. There's no question that for many communities, for many individuals, they do feel under attack. And we should be listening to that and to those feelings and, you know, giving those feelings their due and, and trying to amplify them and giving them a space. If those are the, quote, voices of the marginalized, let's listen to those voices more. But we risk a deep breakdown. We're on the precipice of a breakdown around these issues. Maybe we're already past it, where the echo chambers are so strong and people are so closed off to one another around these things. I mean, this didn't happen overnight. It didn't happen with Trump. It's been coming for a long time. You know, in many ways, we see the antecedents of this in the way that Newt Gingrich, when he was speaker, the way that his deep opposition to Clinton. There's always historical echoes to these things. I'm going to ask you something about the way it's, which Penn is going to be useful. So there are 4,000 universities and colleges in America. You can't go to all of those campuses. In this resource, how can they make this usable for them? You can download it. It's on the website. You have summarized principles. What is the best way for a college or university to think, this is helpful for me? On one level, what we're trying to do is set the record straight on a lot of these developments and remind people of the complexity and the nuance necessary to understand the scope of what's happened on different campuses or with different pieces of legislation or with attacks on particular faculty to be a kind of authoritative, detailed voice on these debates, on these issues, the authoritative account of what's happened. And on the other hand, we're going to be taking our principles and turning them into other forms of guidance and advice for administrators, for faculty, for students. And I think at the core, though, it's some of our philosophical messages that will ring the most true in that. And they do resonate a lot of the time around, you know, what are the proactive steps that you need to be doing to address these issues, to lay the groundwork for people when they arrive on the campus so that, you know, the campus is a community that we all understand the compact that we're buying into by being there. And I think that the more that universities can be open and explicit about a lot of those values, the better off they're going to be. Mm -hmm. You had a a bunch of events over the last couple of years, panel discussions or such things. Are you going to continue to be involved in those kinds of things? So we continue to imagine ourselves as trying to be thought leaders on a lot of these issues and helping people to understand them and, and understand how we are thinking about them through our commentary and through our analysis. And we do continue to take advocacy for particular cases where we think, you know, something could be changed or undone or redone or done differently. Uh, and we do continue to do a round of campus engagements as a regular part of our work. We really believe in the importance of 
of trying as much as possible to remain on the front lines of these issues so that our work is relevant to people. One of the things that we'll be doing in the next year is reaching out to more specific targeted administrative communities, for example, like uh, residential advisors is one of the ones that we'll be trying to tap into a little more to understand what are the issues in residence halls. But there are other realms as well, and we're really very open to partnering with campuses, to continuing to do dialogues on campuses, helping to organize public events for campus communities and the broader public in general to help college communities educate and understand, you know, core principles and how free speech and inclusion can be put together. When I'm listening to you, I have two thoughts, and I thought it would be useful and important probably to invite and involve journalists, because I do think they can't really get the texture of what happens in university and colleges. They hear something, they have to interpret it as smart as they can be. They don't quite necessarily know. If they were on a panel and really heard and were actually put into this situation to listen deeply to other perspectives on this and politicians, because I do think the debate has been framed in a slightly odd way. And your report here, Chasm in the Classroom, really adds much more nuance and takes examples and says, this is useful. We can learn from it. This exemplifies and explains something else. So if politicians and journalists were invited into this, I think it's actually useful to talk with faculty and students in the setting of the university. And Penn here has a really useful function because you're neutral. If it's a university organizing it about itself, it's a little bit sort of the university's introspective. But if you're saying Penn can co-convene something or co-sponsor this, I think it gives the university some breathing room to say, we can actually look at ourselves here for a moment. And we have somebody from the outside participating. And yeah, and that's been one of the advantages to our work to date as a kind of neutral third party coming in, you know, especially when we're convening a dialogue of a, a number of individuals who don't trust one another, who are from different political backgrounds. And I said to someone, you know, we're, we're not just trying to bring people to the table, we're trying to be the table. But on campuses as well, one of the groups that is also extremely relevant are student journalists. Many college campuses have seen their student journalists attack for things they've written. But at the same time, it's actually student journalists and student newspapers, college student newspapers, which actually usually contain a lot of the detailed, nuanced complexity which is being lost in a lot of the national media about what's happened on a college campus, about what's happened after on a college campus, about what different people on the college felt about something and how they reacted to it. And you can really appreciate and understand that complexity much better by picking up you know, the college newspaper and talking with student journalists. Jonathan, I want to thank you, and I want to thank you for writing this incredible short book on the speech controversies, which I'm sure will continue to be updated. So it's a really great resource, and I want to thank you for joining me on the podcast. Today. Thanks so much. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you.